out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come broken hearted, let rescue begin. Come find your mercy, oh sinner, come kneel. Earth has no sorrow, heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow, heaven can't Lay down your burdens, lay down your shame, and all who are broken, lift up your face. Welcome to Mosaic this evening. Let's stand as we bring our hurts and our troubles to Him. There's hope for the hopeless and all those who strayed. Come sit at the table. Come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary. Rest that endures. And earth has no sorrow. Heaven can't cure. Lay down your burdens, lay down your shame, and all who are broken, lift up your face. safety. You are security for us. And no matter how dark the night gets here on this earth, oh, we look to the morning in you. How grateful we are for your steadfast love for us. Amen. You can be seated. Hey, good evening, Mosaic. It is my honor to welcome you and uh, say just it's good to be together to worship together again. I've got a, a list of things I want to hit real quick, so I, got my, I, don't, I don't trust my memory. If you were with us last week, uh, Matt Natesel asked us to be praying. Our students are on their fall retreat and asked us to be praying. Uh, they all had to be COVID tested, asked us to be praying for negative tests. And so I just wanted to tell you, the last I heard, out of 100 tests, they had one positive. So thank you for praying. We are, we are grateful for that. 
Hey, one of the things we like to do around here is give us opportunities to learn together. And uh, there are several things coming up that I want to just let you know about. One of them, you're going to look at the, the date and you're going to go, why in the world are you talking about something that's happening in 2023? But there is a trip called the Journeys of Paul. And the reason I'm talking about it now is because there's actually some informational meetings that are coming up really soon. But if this is something that you think you might be interested in, you can get some more information there. Uh, but I just wanted to call your attention to it. It's going to be happening in a, a long time from now, but it'll be here pretty, pretty soon, okay? Also, we've got training center classes that will be launching uh, tomorrow. And uh, most of those are meeting on, on, on the Sunday mornings, but they also have online classes if you want to do some of those and jump in and learn more together. Uh, so I wanted to call your attention to that. And then this tonight we're going to be launching into a new series, Study Through First Timothy. Uh, we have the books out in the foyer if you haven't got one yet. But uh, as, as Nick gets us ready to, to jump into this uh, tonight, I wanted to, to just remind you, he has done an overview video that you can find online and go and watch that. And it kind of introduces this series and this study and the book of First Timothy. Uh, and, uh, and he does a fantastic job. So I want to remind you that that's out there. Also, we have our disaster relief fund that's open. Uh, because not only do we learn together, we also serve together. We like to, to, to give opportunities to bless and serve. And so we have our disaster relief fund open for people. Right now, we're focusing on folks who uh, have been impacted by the hurricane, but we're also looking for opportunities uh, to, to use those funds to bless the refugees that are coming out of Afghanistan. So I wanted to make you aware of that. If you want to give, you can give online and, uh, and do that. Um, most of us can remember, if, if, if you're 25 years old and up, most of us can remember what, where we were and what was going on 20 years ago today when 9-11 happened. It changed a culture. It changed a world. It was a huge thing. And, and 20 years now. 2,996 people died. And every one of those persons was an image bearer. They were made in the image of God. And their life mattered to God. And so I wanted just to take a minute and kind of think about that. That one event... You know, one of the things we say around here, we say all are broken, but the second thing we say is all matter, and we believe that. Guys, even the 19 terrorists that caused that to happen, their lives mattered. And the deception they were living under is just a reminder to us of how much our world needs the gospel. That one event launched us into the longest war in the history of our country. And more lives were lost. And it'd be easy for us to sit here and, and look at these numbers and, and think about, oh my goodness, where is the hope in that? And that's why we're gathered here tonight. Because we, we just believe that there is hope. We believe that there is a reason to lift up our heads. We believe that there is an answer to the problem that is just continually infecting this world. And we believe that is Jesus. Our hope is found in two things. Number one, our hope is found in the fact that we believe that God is great. And he is bigger than any cataclysmic event that could ever happen on this earth. We believe he's bigger than that. We believe that when 9-11 happened, God was still on his throne. And we believe he is big enough to deal with and fix anything that we break and mess up. And then secondly, our hope rests in we believe that God is good. He's not just a powerful God. He is a good God. And he is already in the process of healing and redeeming and restoring and fixing all these things that we are struggling with and wrestling with. 
And again, we gather because we believe those two things are true. And we celebrate that God and we worship that God and we declare the goodness and the greatness of our God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we remember, let's remember, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, my prayer is that you don't grieve hopelessly. And so we grieve because those lives mattered. They were important. All matter. And we grieve. But we grieve with hope because Jesus died to give us that hope. So would you pray with me? Lord, I just begin by confessing to you that you are great. I'm reminded of what the psalmist says when he asks the question, why do the nations rage? Because God is on his throne. And Lord, even when Entire groups of people, nations shake their fist in your face. God, they do not. They don't challenge your sovereignty one bit. You are a sovereign God. Lord, I confess to you with my brothers and sisters here that you are good. Even when sin seems to be taken over, even when the most horrible things we can think of are happening, we confess, Lord, you are good. Lord, you died not just for the sins that we commit, you died for the sins committed against us to bring healing and hope even in those. So Lord, we confess those two truths tonight as we lift up our hearts and our voices in praise to you, as we hear your word, speaking to us, encouraging us, challenging us. Lord, we do so confessing that we believe that you are great enough and you are good enough to be the answer to all of our problems. So receive our praise. May we encounter your empowering presence tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe in God our I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Join me, stand. takes up our cause. Our judge and our defender suffered and crucified. Forgiveness is in you. Descended into darkness, you rose in glorious light. Forever seated high. I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus Christ is the Lord.
gratitude to you. You are so worthy of this praise. Full hearts proclaiming your goodness to us. this last course to proclaim this truth that all of our lives has been faithful. Take a look in the rearview mirror of your life. Do you, can you say that in truth? If you can't, would you ask him for the faith to believe tonight? Take a moment. of gratitude. Let's sing it together. All my life. Here we go. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have 
Jesus, thank you for gathering us in this room tonight, for bringing us all here on this day of remembrance. And I just pray that you will flood our hearts and sweep the room with revival, that we will hear your word with reverence and understanding and joy, and that we will continue to live your mission in our daily life throughout this week, in our families and in our friends and in our neighborhoods and in our places of work. Guide our path, light our way, and be with us. In your name, amen. Hi, Mosaic. My name is Karen Natesel. I live in Springdale with my husband, Matt, and our four awesome kids, four, six, eight, and 10. Most Saturday nights at five o'clock, you can find me over in the preschool and kindergarten area hanging out with the awesome small humans over there. Um, tonight, I'm honored to be here with the grown-up humans and to read to you our scripture for tonight. Hear now from the word of the Lord, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. You know, it's, uh, it's easy to come to these first couple of verses in a letter like this and take them for granted, jump right on to, to where the real letter starts, right? But there's something pretty fascinating to be gleaned from the way so many of the books of our New Testament start out. Um, what we get when we look at verse one is a greeting. Really simple letter formula. Like we all did this like in, in elementary school, right? Like you learned the format of how to write a letter. Do y'all remember doing this? Like dear so-and-so, next line, you put the date up here, how to do a greeting, different kinds of greetings for different kinds of people, right? The same rules existed in the ancient world. They had different kinds of forms for different kinds of letters, and this letter to 1 Timothy, along with the rest of them in the New Testament, they follow a form. And that form includes naming the letter writer right out of the gate, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior in Christ Jesus our hope. And then the next thing that's going to happen is it's going to name the recipient. Who is this letter to? To Timothy, my true son in the faith. And then there's always some kind of greeting, some kind of prayer or blessing on the recipient. And that's what we find here. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Two things that I think we have to take note of right out of the gate. First of all, the fact that we get a letter form is actually kind of odd, if you think about it. In, in the world of religious texts, to study a letter is weird. 
right? Like you think about, if you think, if you ever looked at other world religions and the kinds of things you would think spiritual people would get around and reflect on, reading somebody's mail is weird. So how is it, why is it that when the first century church was collecting the documents, they recognized had the divine stamp, the breath of God on them? Why did they choose to collect a bunch of letters, a bunch of mail, and copy it for the whole church? That tells us something really special about our faith. Our faith is not just the stuff of some spiritual, ethereal fantasy land. Our faith takes place in the real world. It took place among real people that had real issues and real problems. And so what happened was you had this seismic event called the life of Jesus, where Jesus of Nazareth came and lived and taught the way of God. He brought to fulfillment everything the Hebrew scriptures pointed to. He presented himself as king, and then Jerusalem killed their king. But he rose again three days later and showed himself not only the true king, but also the true God the one approved by God to lead his people. And then he did, in my mind, the most surprising thing. He left town. Like right after he has this monumental victory, he spends 40 days training his followers and then he leaves. And he entrusts the movement to them. So then these people who are eyewitnesses of Jesus, they start spreading out throughout the Roman world, starting communities of faith, not that different from this one, all over the Roman Empire. Now think about this. These messengers would often come to town. They would stop for a few weeks, at most a couple of years. In the case of the city we're looking at here, it was a couple of years. And they would teach them. Now can you imagine having a church like this? No gospels. No New Testament. One traveling preacher comes to town and starts Fellowship Bible Church in Rogers, teaches us for a couple of years everything there is to know about the Christian faith, and then leaves, and we're on our own to figure it out from there. Can you imagine? And so what they would do is they would invest deeply in these local leaders that they called elders. And they said, hey, we're entrusting you to be responsible for leading this community. And if you ever have any questions send us a letter. And that's the way the next several decades play out, is when these local churches had questions or problems, they would send a letter to the apostles, to the original followers of Jesus, saying, hey, this has come up and we don't know what to say. You never taught us about this while you were here, or we disagree about what you said, we can't remember. Can you solve it for us? And when the confusion got big enough, they would send a special representative to the church to in person come in and sort it out. And that's exactly what has happened with Timothy and the city called Ephesus. Ephesus was a church that was dearly loved to the Apostle Paul. He started this church, he spent a couple years there, and then after he had moved on to start churches elsewhere, some funky stuff started happening in Ephesus. And it was bad enough that Paul said, I need to send Timothy, this young man that he had been mentoring, I need to send Timothy to Ephesus to put their house in order. And that's what the first letter to Timothy is all about. Timothy has gotten there to Ephesus, and now Paul is sending Timothy instructions. This is what you need to focus on while you're there. This is what I sent you there to do, and this is what I want you to pay special attention to. So the first thing we notice is the situation, the odd situation of this letter that became our spiritual-inspired text. The second thing that I think is worth pointing out that's gonna be central to this whole letter is something that we take for granted but would have been radical in the first century. When Paul talks about his role as an apostle, he said he received his command from God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope. For a first century Jew to put God and any man in a sentence next to each other as equally able to command him was shocking. But it's even stronger. At the end, he promises, he prays grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Now, these words, God and Lord, had a special meaning to Paul and to other Jews. They would pray this prayer every single day. They would pray, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Paul has taken this phrase, the Lord your God, and said, the Lord Jesus, God the Father. He has put Jesus right in the middle of the prayer that every Jew prayed to their one true God. What has he done? He has now said, as the entire early church confessed, that Jesus our Lord, as the Son of God, is equal to God the Father. And that confession is the center of the faith. That we have one God, one Lord, the Father and, Je- and the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit that binds us together. This is the foundation of the faith that Paul's going to lead him into. And then, as soon as he's done with his greeting, he launches straight in to the practical instruction. If we were to look at how the letter is laid out, um, it looks like this. It's basically broken down into four sections. Um, we have the greeting right up front, the salutation, and then all of chapter one is focused on correcting a problem in the church. Something has gone wrong in the church. By the way, this outline uh, is in your First Timothy workbooks, if you've got that. Something has gone wrong in the church, so Timothy has to correct that. And then because of the correction, there's now got to be some repair. They have to positively say, how should the church be working? And one of the metaphors that's going to be going through the whole time is this idea of a household. Paul's going to treat the church like it's some kind of family, a household, that has to run a certain way. We experience this in our households, right? Like, you know, Colin's story last week about doing the dishes in the bathtub. When things break down, you have to find new systems that are going to work, okay? Um, Just to clarify, I did live in that house, but it was before Colin, and I never washed dishes in the bathtub. So I was not party to that behavior. Um, So... When things break down, not only do you need to correct what went badly, you also have to build some systems to to protect the health going forward. And so Paul's going to give some instructions to Timothy on this is how you can set up some structures in the church to help it stay healthy. And then he closes with a personal instruction to Timothy. He says, Timothy, it is not enough for you to put that house in order. You have to guard your own soul. You have to remain faithful to the Lord as well. There is a danger in anyone who sets out to lead that there could actually be a lack of depth and maturity in the one leading since they try to lead someone else somewhere they've not themselves been. And so Paul gives instructions to Timothy that he himself must pursue godliness. Now, I think I'm really excited about God's timing and bringing this letter to us as a congregation because I think it's a great time to just do a pulse check on our household, to take a look and see how are we doing. The last 18 months have been nuts, okay? Let's just own that. At every level, culturally, as a nation, in this congregation with lots of transition and things going on, um, it is a great time to hit pause and say, how should a healthy church function? And so I'm excited to see what the Lord has for us as we, as we walk through this letter to Timothy. So we're just gonna jump right in to the heavy stuff. Like we gotta go right out of the gate. That's what Paul did. He, he went swinging for the correction right out of the gate. So that's what we gotta do too. So in verse three, Paul reminds Timothy of why he's there in the first place. He says, as I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. So Paul's just reminding him of how it originally happened. Paul was moving on. He told Timothy to stay. And here's the purpose, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Okay, so anytime we read one of these letters, we have an interesting situation. Have you ever listened to one side of a phone call? Like you're in the room when somebody else is on the phone and you can tell what's being talked about is pretty important, maybe a little bit intense, and you're trying to put together the conversation with only one half. That's what we have when we have these letters. We're getting one half of the conversation here. And so we have to imagine a little bit the situation based on the half that we're given. We weren't in Ephesus. We don't know exactly what was happening. But the priority here, the reason that Timothy is in Ephesus is because 
some people in the church were teaching false things. They were teaching things that were not true, and he describes it in a little more detail exactly what this false teaching was. He said, you must teach them not to uh, teach false doctrines or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, I find this incredibly fascinating in light of, I don't know if you remember what we looked at two weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, the original first church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Do you remember what they were devoted to? The apostles' teachings. The core truth about Jesus. And he says that they were supposed to be devoted to the good news about Jesus. Instead, they have become devoted to myths and endless genealogies. Now, we don't know exactly what this is. However, we can reconstruct some of it because we have a lot of literature from the first century. And something that was really common was to take characters from the Old Testament and write like long Hercules-type myths and legends about their lives. We have, you know, we have this wonderful story about Enoch that gets a verse in Genesis. If you don't know the story where Enoch walked with God and then God just snatched him up. Have you ever been curious? Like, what was that guy's life like? Like, what was he up to? And well, guess what? They wrote long stories about Enoch. Long hero legends of these people. And so possibly what's happening, the, those, those stories that we have about different Old Testament figures, they are outside of God's word. A lot of it's just works of imagination. Possibly some of these people are grabbing some of this kind of fringe Jewish religious stuff that was outside of God's word and they were saying, hey, this is the stuff we need to focus on. This is how you become really spiritual. And they were bringing that into the church and saying, this is what we really need to be paying attention to as a church. So sometimes when we read the New Testament, you're gonna find that there is false teaching that is just like a direct contradiction of the good news about Jesus. They'll deny that Jesus really came in the flesh. They'll deny that he really died and rose again. But there is something that can be equally as damaging to a flat-out denial. And that is an intense distraction. When somebody takes something that is way over here on the fringe, way over here on the margin, that is not part of Scripture, that is not part of the, the center of what we're supposed to be about, and they say, this should be the church's focus. This is what we have to rally all of our resources around. And Paul is opposing these people who are trying to take the focus of the church off of the good news of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and how we can all be made more like Christ and put it on whatever their little hobby horse speculation is. And here's what he says it leads to. Look in verse four. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Because the focus of the church has gotten deviated from its heart and its purpose to whatever this other thing over here is, the work of the church is not going forward. And that is what is so devastating. They have let the air out of the tires of the church. And Paul says it must be stopped. And then, and you're going to see Paul's going to do this throughout the letter. This is one of his strategies. He's going to contrast and move back and forth between the negative and the positive, the negative and the positive to make it really clear. If what they're doing is promoting controversy and not advancing the work of God, what should the work of God be? Take a look at verse 5. The goal of this command, the goal of probably the command to stop the false teaching is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, Paul's saying one of the clear evidence that what they're doing is not of Jesus is that it is promoting controversy and fighting and division in the church instead of love for each other. You see, you can imagine a situation where somebody could become really passionate about some issue over here and they might even be right. They might even have the best perspective on this issue. 
But because they have left focusing on the good news of Jesus to focus on this, they have now made all their brothers and sisters in Christ their enemy. And Paul says, hey, any teaching that turns your brothers and sisters in Christ into your enemies is not of Christ. When Jesus talked about how the world is gonna recognize us, do you remember what he said? They're gonna recognize us by our love for each other. So if somebody thinks they are on a crusade for God and in so doing, it's leading them to hate their brothers and sisters in Christ, we can confidently say they're on the wrong crusade. Paul says the aim of this instruction is love. Love that comes, and he gives us a trio. He says love that comes from a pure heart. The word purity there, it's the word for cleansing. Um, It probably refers to a forgiven heart. It comes from a heart that has been forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Which seems to point to that idea of, man, when you realize what Jesus has done for you, when you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, that will lead to love for others, even those you disagree with. It comes from a pure heart and it comes from a good conscience. That word conscience, it means exactly what you might think it means. It means the ability to tell between right and wrong. So it comes from a heart that's been forgiven, from a conscience that's able to choose good from bad and to walk in that, and then finally, a sincere faith, a trust in Jesus that isn't filled with hypocrisy, that is ready to be consistent in everything. And Paul's saying, when you have a a forgiven heart, a desire to do what's good, and a sincere, unhypocritical faith, that will lead toward love for other people, your brothers and sisters in Christ and those beyond. And what's happening among these teachers that are off on their hobby horse does not reflect that kind of love. And by the way, if love for each other will show the world that we're followers of Jesus, what will division, infighting, and hatred show the world? probably won't look very good for Jesus. It won't make Jesus look good. And that's why Paul is so concerned to correct it. Now he's going to jump back here and he's going to lay into the false teachers a little bit more. We get to have a lot of fun here. Some have departed from these, departed from the values and the things that lead to love, and turn instead to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. I love that Paul is willing to call it here. They want to put themselves in the position of informed teacher when in fact they are ignorant. Now, um, allow me to rant just a little bit here. We have never had access to as much information as we do today. I have a friend who's a pharmacist, and he showed me an app on his phone that pharmacists use that has every piece of data, the ability to calculate everything he would want to use, and anyone can go buy it in the app store and download it. He goes, this is it. Like, this is pharmacy school right here in this app. Now, let me ask you a question. If I went and bought that app, would you trust me, who has zero education, in anything pharmaceutical, to start prescribing drugs for your family? The answer should be no. No. Okay? What that tells us is access to information does not equal knowledge and wisdom. We have access to an amazing amount of information in the phones in our pockets. That does not equal knowledge. And I am amazed... At the, at the number of references I get to research where the research is somebody sitting in their car holding a phone up and talking into the camera. And that is considered researching and being informed. And, and you will see people getting insights into biblical truth from someone they have never met, they've never walked in community with, whose qualification is that they have a webcam. 
And this is considered getting informed. And Paul is saying these people are presenting themselves as your teachers, but they are ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about. In fact, over and over again in the New Testament, the ability to teach is tied to accountability to a community to walk in godliness. If you can't see that someone is following Jesus in their daily life, you should be incredibly hesitant to look to them as your teacher. And so many of us are getting informed from a random video on YouTube. And Paul, when he describes these teachers, he says they, they present themselves as authoritative, but they don't know what they're talking about. So you, he tells Timothy, you need to shut them up. And my concern for the church in America in general, and, and particularly for this body, is that we would spend more time listening and being shaped by voices we do not know than seeking Christ together in community in the scriptures. So now, uh, Paul's gonna turn. After, after he's put down the way they are handling the law, he's gonna remind, it seems that they are probably focused on some kind of um, Jewish teaching based on what we would call the Old Testament, talking about heroes and talking about certain restrictions on the law. We don't know exactly what it is. There was a lot of confusion in the early church because these new churches were no longer practicing the sacrifices and all the things that we associate with the Old Testament on exactly which parts of those, what part of the Old Testament and how did it apply to the New Testament church. So there's probably something going on around that here. And that's why Paul says in verse eight, we know the law is good if one uses it properly. That speaks to that issue of wisdom in teaching. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. Uh, Paul's saying, and he says this in multiple places, the purpose of the law, of the rules, is to point out our sin. That's what it's there for. You don't put a speed limit sign up for all the people who are driving safely, right? The speed limit sign is there for people who are speeding to tell them to stop. And Paul's saying, hey, there is a purpose to the law, it has a place, and it's for people who are doing things that do not honor God. And he goes on to make a list here. And this list mirrors what we call the Ten Commandments remarkably. He starts with a list of things that speak to our relationship with God. The ungodly and sinful. The unholy and irreligious. And then he shifts to the relationship with mothers and fathers. And the most extreme, those who kill their mothers and fathers. Then to murder, for murderers. The next command speaks to adultery. He says, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality. Um, by the way, side note here, sexual sin is sexual sin, period. There's not an extra special class of sexual struggle. So notice Paul puts practicing homosexuality and all adultery right next to each other, all forms of sexual immorality. God has a design. He doesn't create special classes of sinners here. He just says God has a design for sex and anything else is outside of it. And then the next command in the Ten Commandments speaks to uh, ownership of property, not stealing. But look what he says. For slave traders and liars, slave traders. Why next to in the place of the Ten Commandments talking about stealing, would he go to a slave trader? In, in, in these examples, Paul is picking the most extreme example he possibly can. So it's the sin to dishonor your mother and father. How far could that go? The most extreme would be to kill him. If we're called not to steal someone else's property, what would be the most extreme form of that imaginable? To treat another person as property. Now, this is fascinating to me. I don't know how many times I've read 1 Timothy, and I have never noticed the word slave trader there. In fact, if you would have asked me where in the New Testament clearly and explicitly is the slave trade called sin, I would not have been able to answer that question. I would have said, I don't think it's there. 
And a scholar named Esau Macaulay, a, a black scholar up at Wheaton, he wrote a book called Reading While Black, and he pointed this out. He says, every black person reads this verse and goes, whoa, it's right there. Which speaks to, again, the value of reading the scripture in community and hearing the things that are gonna leap off the page to them. Right here, in this list of sins that dishonor God, the, the idea of the slave trader leaps off the page as it's condemned as the worst abuse of stealing property, actually treating another person as property. And then liars and perjurers to finish it out, and he says, for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine, the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. What's the standard? All of the teachings that we talk about, all ethics, all morality, what does it all have to line up with? The gospel. That word gospel means the good news about Jesus. That is the standard. That is the home base that everything comes back to. Okay, so are we ready to have fun and make this personal now? What are some things that we as a culture have faced over the last 18 months? Any controversies that may have taken our attention a little bit? Here's just a quick list I made. My goal was to offend everybody equally. We had a fight over the 2020 election. We had a fight over January 6th. We've had fights over masks. We've had fights over vaccines. We've had fights over critical race theory and over lab leak theory and over cancel culture. And I have heard every single issue on this screen be named as the central challenge for the church this year. Something worth breaking fellowship with people and leaving the church over. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say not a single one of these is central to the gospel of Jesus. Now, does that mean they're not important issues? No, and it's perfectly fine for you to have a strong feeling about them. That's great. What's not okay is to draw a line in the sand and say, if you don't agree with me on this issue, we have no fellowship in Jesus. That is what is unacceptable. That is what we cannot do as a church. That's why we are not going to be the pro-mask or the anti-mask church. We're not going to be the pro-vaccine or the anti-vax church. We're not gonna be the pro-critical race theory or the crushing critical race theory church. We are going to be the faith in Jesus who died and rose again, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and make disciples church. Now, just like when Paul pointed to the law, that doesn't mean that there are no biblical ethics. You're gonna have to work out what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's gonna lead to practical questions. But the point is, when you move to those more practical issues, we're gonna be a community that comes together and is okay disagreeing about how these things flesh themselves out. This happened in the first century too. They knew they weren't supposed to worship idols, so they had a fight over, so what does that mean when we know there's meat in the marketplace that was dedicated to idols? And there are people, some people who said, it doesn't matter, eat it as long as you're not worshiping. Other people said, I can't touch it. And you know what Paul's answer was? Did he pick a side and say, you're right and you guys are out? No. He said, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. And I think today, Paul would probably say the kingdom of God is not a matter of masks and vaccines or whatever controversy we're all up in arms about. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have strong feelings about it and have a strong opinion. That's great. It means that we're not gonna divide the church on it. I was having lunch with Tom Toomer, leader of our prayer ministry here, and he pointed out something that I thought was so beautiful and fascinating for this discussion. Among Jesus' early followers, the controversy of the day for Israel was Rome and how to respond to the Roman occupation. And among Jesus' followers, he had two men that took very different approaches. He had Levi, a tax collector, a part of the system, complicit in the system. And he had Simon, the zealot, 
whose conviction was to honor God, we need to take up arms and fight against Rome. Can you imagine the first time those two sat down for dinner together? Now, here's the question. Where in the Gospels does Jesus solve that issue for them? Where does he say this side is right and that side's wrong? He doesn't do it. And apparently, Matthew and Simon could both follow Jesus despite their disagreeing on a really important issue to them. The goal of this command is love. It comes from pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If I were to to summarize what I think Paul is saying in, in one big sentence, one big idea, I'd say God's work is advanced when God's people unite in love around the gospel. That is what this church is called to do. That is to be our focus. That is what we are to be devoted to. Committed to the gospel of Jesus, loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray. God, that is our desire. And Lord, I pray that any place in my heart um, where I might wanna put my personal preferences, passions, and convictions Above my loyalty to your gospel and to your church, Lord, I repent. And Lord, I pray that this church um, will be a church that is known by our love for you and our love for each other and for our radical, obsessive commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to making that known in the way we live out our lives together and the way we live in our community and in the world. For your glory and for your people's joy, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this last song. You made peace and all around us war. You make us one and we've sought divorce. is our course together we come to remember how loved in your kindness you lead to repentance by your mercy we're found in our sin at the table Show. Sure.
us into would we be welcome tables of that love oh Lord Holy Spirit would you call us to repentance as we've surely taken our eyes off of you would you mend the broken reconcile what's been divided Church, as we close tonight, let's read together this Philippians passage as our benediction. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, let's go in unity. We love you and we'll see you next week.